0: Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Lones. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica. The smoke funneling out of the back of the car. Stanfield drives by. On this episode, it's our Phoenix pre-race show with Kevin McKenna and Tony Pedragon. And it's Tripp Tatum for the first time in his career. 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. We dive into the controversies of the week, look back at Gainesville, and put our expectations on Phoenix. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car. Going through the finish line stripe, Bobby maintains control of the automobile. This is the NHRA Insider. Number 16 is going to take out number one. He left on a by a day and a half. Both Manson Hines bikes are out, and it is crazy town in Pro Stock Motorcycle. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans, and we are back again for another fun pre-race show. Uh, We have Tony Pedregon and Kevin McKenna coming on, the two insiders that uh, really do a great job. They they add a great angle to this show, got a lot of positive feedback about our Gainesville pre-race show. We've been having uh, these kind of three-way chats, if you will, for the better part of a couple of seasons now. They're both great guys that get to look inside the sport, both have their own unique takes. And it's really going to be fun to kind of have some analysis uh, of what we should be expecting in Phoenix and maybe what we missed or what we should pay more attention to coming out of Gainesville. It is going to be the first time we see the Mission Foods Too Fast, Too Tasty Challenge. It'll be Pro Stock, Top Fuel, and Nitro Funny Car, as Pro Stock motorcycles are not being contested in Phoenix, and they will be squaring off. Remember, those semifinalists from those three categories will run off for additional money and championship points to be added. After the regular season, these are countdown points they're racing for with the second event of the year. It is a fun twist, and it's going to be fun to watch it all play out. It has been a bit of a controversial week in the world of NHRA drag racing since we left last went off the air. Uh, it's called Weight Gate. It's called Salinas Top Fuel Weight, Scrappers Weight Gate, whatever you want to call it there was a story that came out um it was uh, an infringement in weight after the race was completed in Gainesville Mike Salinas remains the winner he was docked 20 points we're going to get into this with Kevin and Tony certainly there appears to be some muddy waters here not in terms of the weight of the car the weight of the car is is not disputed in terms of the fact it was underneath the weight but how we kind of got to that point is something we're going to investigate here and um it is uh, it is kind of weird. It is kind of weird, and uh, that is maybe one of the reasons why it makes this such an interesting story, especially coming off the first race of the season. We talked a lot about Gainesville already last week with Rob Flynn, uh, and of course with Andrew Hines. And ironically, we talked to Rob Flynn, um, and I spoke to him, and there was really no indication anything was going on behind the scenes. And then, whammo, this whole story kind of comes to uh, comes to a head mid mid part of the week. Long story short, we'll get into that with the guys here in just a couple of minutes. Too Fast Too Tasty is going to be great in Phoenix. The fact that this is going to be effectively a three-day sold-out crowd, uh, we can say that with confidence already because of the fact that all the reserve seating is sold out for the entire race already, all of it. Uh, If you're coming to the Arizona Nationals, get up early. Get up early. Curtail the party time at night. Get up early unless you love traffic in the desert because it is going to be, Madness And the best way possible. We love full drag strips. Full drag strips are happy drag strips. And to be able to start the season with this kind of one-two, back-to-back combo of big crowds is is really spectacular. You know, when we look at the cars we're going to have, full fields and all the pro categories, pro stock coming in with, I think, 18 entries. we got 16 in, in Nitro Funny Car and Top Fuel. The conditions presenting themselves beautifully. Um, it really does have all the bones, so to speak, of a very memorable weekend. Will it be the very last time we go to Arizona? I certainly hope it won't be. And there may be some very quiet um, indications, hopefully, and, and they're outside indications and and it is very quiet that we may end up hopefully being able to uh, head back to Arizona in the future. But we do have to treat this as the last visit. We for all intents of purposes, all intents and purposes, uh, this is the last visit until somebody says it is, and it is. And so I love the fact that the fans are coming out in such droves to experience this race, always do well in Phoenix, and it's just going to be over the top. I could go on and on, but frankly, I'd rather go on and on with the guys who are the guests on this show. So when we come back, it'll be Kevin McKenna. It'll be Tony Pedragon, It'll be me. It'll be the insider's take, not only in on Gainesville, but also on this whole Salinas-Waite situation, what we should be looking for in Phoenix. And I have a feeling at least one of these guys says a bold prediction somewhere up their sleeve somewhere and what will promise i promise to be a rollicking conversation don't go anywhere nhra insider will be right back hey everybody welcome back to the nhra insider as promised it is a pre-race show and that means i gotta bring my two boys back here as has become a staple on the nhra insider that people like i got a lot of great uh, feedback in gainesville from both kevin mckenna and tony pedragon as part of this triumvirate of pre-race shows boys how are you doing kevin how are things in uh, in good old indiana uh,
1: great. It's, you, you think spring's coming, you hope it's coming, but then you get a half inch of snow on the ground when you get back from Gainesville.
0: Well, but, I don't know if Tony had that problem, because Tony, Tony decided not to really go back from Gainesville before the snow. Jerk. No, Tony's a wise man.
2: I took a wrong turn. I went south uh, to Fort
0: Lauderdale.
2: <laughs> ah. And I came back, and that was a mistake.
0: <laughs> well, look, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about here. And before we get really rolling towards Phoenix, I want to talk about Gainesville and specifically um, what some have dubbed, well, I guess what Sean Langdon has dubbed the weight gate. Uh, obviously, we know that a statement was made by the NHRA that following the race that uh, Salinas' car was uh, failed a post-race inspection, uh, which we, the three of us, I, I don't know if it was specifically mentioned anywhere, but it really comes down to the weight of the race car. And, and Tony, I want to start here with you because uh, we really, really haven't heard much we've we got the statement from nhra they took the points away for the win he keeps the win which is kind of traditional nascar does the same thing but uh what has been the buzz in the greater brownsburg area after all this stuff happened and and honestly one more thing i want to say is all this happened after we went off the air on sunday so it wasn't like we didn't talk about it on the show because we didn't want to we simply didn't know what was going on until until we were well off the air so tony go ahead
2: yeah, and it's as simple as the car, the Mike Salinas car that won the race going across the scales and not meeting the weight requirements. The car was light. Now, how light, I don't know. But I can tell you one thing that I, I just don't understand, and I think it's very unfair to our fans, to especially our hardcore fans that are so interested, so intrigued, yeah. like we are. Yep. You know, we're just, I, I want to know. You probably want to know. Kevin, yeah. you probably want to know. I think... I think everyone just wants to know, give it to us straight. I yeah. think, I think, especially our fans. You know, forget about forget about what I want. I, I'd like some accuracy. I'd like to be able to relay to our audience exactly what happened. Because if we don't, if we if they look at, uh, for starters, no comment from my cleanliness on Competition Plus. I, and I think I've always said this. That's to some degree, in, in a case like this, that is somewhat an admission of guilt. Okay. So the car was light. Now how light I've heard everything from 10 pounds to 40 to 50 to as much as a hundred pounds. So I want to know, well, how, how much, how much did they miss the weight by? And it it almost sounds like that both parties there's, there's some fault, but I don't really agree. I don't buy that because as a former racer, I understand that every racer understands and every crew chief and tuner and crew member understand, every driver understands that they are to meet the minimum weight. That means when they go across the scale, if they're one or two pounds light, they have to roll off the scale and turn that car around and they better hope that damn tailwind is in their favor because they have to get to that weight and if they don't, that run is disqualified. Now that's a qualifying run. If they don't take the yeah. win away, as I get it. I understand the president's that has been set by NASCAR and in, in my, in my history, my recollection, I don't recall a run being thrown out a win being taken away. Yeah. Um. You know, so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, opinion. okay, so you have the racers, the competition, their, their take, their opinion, course mike is going to have his NHRA is going to have theirs ultimately NHRA makes the decision yeah I believe they've made that decision they've got the 20 points he doesn't have the points lead uh, I don't know if there's a monetary penalty but you know you, we're talking about a race that was determined by a little over a foot and the argument is going to be did that amount of weight did, did that did that determine the outcome of that race? That's really the question.
0: Yeah, and I think, listen, I think that's the uh, that's another factor of this that gets a little bit lost in the wash is the fact that it did come down to such a tight margin. It wasn't like one of the guys smoked the tires and the other guy ran down and went low ET. It was a race that was a, a razor's margin. And Kevin, before I, I throw it to you, I will say, as Tony said, um, you know, if the, I don't, I don't want to say there's culpability on both sides here, but there is some debate or discussion about procedurally what happened over the course of the day. Was a mathematical error made at some point during the day by an NHRA official that then led this team down a an improper path or a false path regarding the weight of the car? Um, I think there is some some discussion on both sides there. Now, ultimately, the car was light. That's the one thing you cannot dispute in any of this that the car did come in underweight when it went across the scales and all the stuff leading up to that. um, Not to say that it's immaterial, but the bottom line is there is a minimum weight and you either make it or you don't make it. So, you know, Kevin, I know that uh, obviously the preponderance of people that work on these things lives uh, really within about a 10 mile radius of where you live. So has there been any uh, localized discussion amongst the, uh, amongst the community here?
1: But well, there is, and I think there's a lot of room for debate. um, It's my understanding that the car weighed heavy in prior rounds specifically the semis and that is what uh, led the team to take weight off before the final so if that's the case you know i i I, you haven't convinced me that there was any intent uh on behalf of the scrappers team to to cheat the system or do anything you know if if anything i think you're talking an honest mistake uh, and i'm not convinced that you need to go that far I just think, as you pointed out, they were given some bad information and that led to making a decision. So, yes, your point that the car did, in fact, go down the track light in the final, um, you can't dispute that. But the events that led to that, uh, I I think there's plenty of room for debate, plenty of room for some leniency. And, you know, I'm just guessing. I'm obviously not a member of the tech department. I'm not involved in these decisions. But I think when you're NHRA and you sit down and you look at the facts and say, well, the car was light, but we also understand that th- there was no malice here. What do what do you think is a fair decision? So not taking away, not taking away the trophy, you know, the docking of 20 points probably in the grand scheme of things, isn't going to have a huge effect. Not when we get to the countdown seven months from now, you know, it might, but probably yeah. not. So I, I guess if you, You know, it's always easy to armchair quarterback these things on Monday, Yeah, but if you're in the heat of the moment, I think you probably sat down and said, well, we have to do something. What do we do that's appropriate? And uh, to to that end, I can't say I disagree with uh, how it played out.
0: Yeah, and listen. In my opinion, and, and Tony, you can disagree if you want, but in my opinion, you know, those guys have been doing this long enough; they've been around long enough that the idea that okay, we're gonna on, we're gonna purposefully try to game the system here and and try to get away with it now, one I think is preposterous. I do think it was an error that was made, and when it comes down to it, to your point, Kevin, you know, the, the the things get real cloudy when we start to try to determine you know malicious intent. Let's say right, and and that's why a racing rule book is always one of these these prickly things because. Yeah, it's in black and white. The car is going to weigh X amount, whether, you know, it either does or it doesn't. And then we can go into that side discussion of why doesn't it weigh that much? Um, and I think the other thing to talk about here in, in terms of the inside baseball that a lot of people don't maybe know is that, you know, you read the, the, the comments that fans are making, which are not bad comments. They're, they're having this discussion in public as, as we are right now. But on a day that we had on in Gainesville, where we're trying to hit a live TV window, there are times when you get waived by the scales. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, Tony, because obviously you've been down there and you've heard the tech guys say, no scales go back to the pits. When you get put on these tight turnarounds yeah. and, and we're trying to buy the teams an extra three, four, five minutes, um, that can change things, right? If that car had been weighed an additional time on race day beyond what it was, does this even come into the, the discussion?
2: Well, it definitely does, and and let me just uh, let me just just say just to clarify, the key word is intent. I yeah. I don't believe that there was any intent. Yeah, I think um, we're, all, we're all on the same have,
0: page there. Yeah,
2: yeah, you have you have to factor this in, and I I'm going to call this waste management because what Mike Salinas did was he pretty much managed the the entire field yep. now if the weight, and this is the only reason that I'm curious about the weight, if we're talking 50 or 50 pounds or 40 pounds, that's a little something. Yeah. But, you know, four or five pounds. Okay. It it is what it is. But here are a couple of things that everyone has to consider. This is the first race of the year. It's not a Pomona. It's at Gainesville. Um, we Brian on the TV side we lost power during the first round. Yes. Okay. I yes. Mean, this this is a very a highly qualified TV crew and it happens because it just the first race took place at a different location and things happen and and this is a case with a lot of teams you know some may may not be able to make the call so the time and TV is definitely a factor and I think that when it's when it all comes down when the dust settles that is one of the things that NHRA has to factor in because people. I'm not going to say they even make mistakes, but you know we're we're all out of uh, out of rhythm. We're out of sync, so it happens. But but I will say, looking at the ladder and looking at what Mike Salinas and his team did on that day, he dominated. Yeah, he pretty much yep. went toe to toe, beat Brittany Force, and dished out some pretty impressive numbers. Now, this is this is going to go away whether it's in two days or I've got a feeling that this is going to go away in a few days when we get to Phoenix. And if Mike Salinas, and this will be part of his legacy, if he can go and I, I'm not going to even say win the race, but if he can get to the final, if he can get to the semifinals, then let, let's, let I think we should apologize to Mike and say, we, we were kind of uh, a little overreactive with the weight thing, because I, I think if he can back up this kind of performance, then they are the real deal and and what they did on Sunday was pretty impressive weight or no weight
0: let's talk a little bit one more angle of this that you and I've t- talked about privately Tony that I think is a really kind of fascinating discussion in that so so a, a precedent has been established with this penalty okay and that, and that precedent is it's it costs Mike Salinas you know 20 points and uh, if there are any other unmentioned things in that statement we don't know but one thing we do know it cost him 20 points. Is that incentive for a team that may go up there with the intent of showing up light, saying, screw the 20 points, I want the 50-some thousand dollars for winning the damn race, and I'll take the 20-point penalty? Is that something, not that could happen because anything could happen, but is that at all, ever, a decision that somebody may consciously make on purpose now?
2: But that's the biggest problem that I think the racers, the the competition is having with this weight issue. Um, I think they want to know. I think they deserve to know. And the problem is going to be if you do it for one, you have you have to do it for the right. other. And and in the past, in the past, being underweight has never really been tolerated. So so this is really the first. I mean, you can go you can go down to every funny car, every pro stock, every um every top fuel team uh, some of them had been thrown out for being a pound or two or three underweight so here's you know here's this team that's somewhat being pardoned so this is the challenge for NHRA, and this is the tough job that lies ahead for them now the decision has been made i don't think that's going to be reversed but they have now set a precedence what do you do when a team rolls across the scales whether it's qualifying whether it's the first round or whether it's the final round. So I think the teams, I think the racers, the drivers are going to be very vocal, and I think they're gonna be very critical. But my only advice would be this, because the scales do vary, and there's a headwind, there's a tailwind that could lighten the car up a little bit, and this is the reason that we see cars constantly, Sunday morning, Saturday morning before qualifying, it's yeah. like, wow, what is that car doing going in front of, you know, parading in front <laughs> yeah. of, uh, you know, the, the fans or lack of fans? they are going to scale. So, again, I, I think to avoid that, if, if it's a team that wants to be within five pounds or eight pounds of the minimum weight, they really should give some consideration to being safe. And, you know, sometimes burning a, a, a little extra fuel, nitromethane, you can round it off and say it's close to 10 pounds a gallon. You know, that that is what the team is. You know, that's their responsibility. So, you know, if, if a team wants to shave it, cut it close, they're going to be at risk. But but again, I think I think the interest is going to be what happens now when somebody uh, a car sets a little long and makes makes the, their opponent maybe a top three car burn a little extra fuel maybe they get in and out of the throttle and maybe they run it to you know 1300 feet and burns a little more fuel and they go across the scale two to three pounds light that is where the problem is going yeah. to lie in the future
1: yeah. uh, you know i don't entirely agree with that I, I think this is an isolated incident where you had extenuating circumstances you know historically any car that's light and this happens a lot of times in sportsman racing, super stock in stock. If you come across the scales light, you're out. Now, obviously it's not something that happens rarely in the pro classes. And I can't think of it ever happening in a final round where, you know, the penalty for disqualification is losing a win. Yeah. Um, but, but again, you know, we know that some things went on prior to the final round that, that basically gave the scrappers team, A logical defense here And I think, you know, that. to me That makes this an isolated incident If you go to Phoenix and in the second round A a top fuel car comes up 20 pounds light You throw them out And you reinstate the winner You reinstate the loser I I think that has historically been How you handle this But again, this situation I think was a little different I think it it demanded a little different uh, Decision making and, And that's how we got to where we are now
0: So total devil's advocate. And that could
2: be. But there again, I think that this is why I would, you know, I think NASCAR and other, you know, F1, it seems like they detail what specifically happened. yes, And I think that number would be interesting. And maybe they don't know what the number is. Maybe it was that big of a debacle. But, you know, if we're talking five, five pounds, like I've heard, then, okay, yeah, that happens. But if. You know, if it's forty pounds, I I just I that is a big discrepancy, and I've heard that number th- been thrown out. That's been thrown out several
0: times. So let me. And you know, Tony, to your point, if Salinas rolls out first round of of qualifying in Phoenix, which looks like it's going to have absolutely magnificent weather, and goes a sixty six, sixty five, whatever, all this doesn't become irrelevant, but it certainly puts it all to bed.
2: It does, and if I'm my Salinas, and you go out there and spit out a, a three sixty six, which I think. I've got a feeling that they're going to. I get out of the car. I pound my chest. And um, I would say take that and, and go down the road
0: yeah no it makes sense and you know let's turn our attention to some of the performers uh, and non-performers I guess we should talk about at Gainesville and you know it was a, a story we made a huge deal of at the race Kevin and, and the guy that we talked to I think most out of anybody which is a rarity for pro stock motorcycle but my goodness Gage Herrera did what we all maybe thought he was capable of but maybe didn't believe he would do and he just went out there and just rode rough shot over all of them yeah
1: you you look at the history of the Vance and Hines team you know from, from Terry Vance to Matt and Andrew Hines and Eddie. Not one of those riders has ever won in their debut with the team. Um, And obviously when they watched Gage ride last year, even though he only made six races and, uh, you know, didn't win around, they saw enough to to believe that he was the guy they wanted on their bike. And then, you know, talking to Andrew and Eddie after testing, are like, oh, this guy's great. He, he listens. He doesn't make mistakes. He's smooth on the bike. Um, you know, a lot of times you get a guy who comes from the Mo bar bike set, and they have a lot of bad habits that you have to break them of because yeah. there's two completely different riding styles. Uh, Gage apparently just picked up on the technique of riding a pro-stock bike uh, as quick as anybody we've seen. And, of course, they gave him enough bike to win the race with, with air to spare, and he just did the rest. You know his lights were not spectacular, but if I've got the field covered by the better part of a tenth, I don't want to see you go double O in any round anyway.
0: Absolutely, um, absolutely. And Andrew, I had Andrew on the show last week, and he and he kind of talked about that a little bit. In that, you know, they were very conscious to kind of keep reminding him. You know, go up there with your head screwed on straight, but you do not need to try and go over your head here in the starting line, and and that is a very difficult thing to manage. You're a racer. Your guys won races. You know that. You know when you when you have an advantage, your perceived advantage over a competitor, it is tough to mentally balance this idea of just being aggressive enough and not trying to kill it.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I never have an advantage over my competitors. Uh, <laughs> certainly not one that large. Um, but but I but I understand your point. Yes. You know, uh, again, if I'm a team owner or a crew chief and he comes back and flashes a time slip with 007 on the reaction time, I- I'm going to tell him, that dial it back a notch. Um, you don't need it. You know, save that for a day when, when you really do need it. Um, but everything he did was just smooth. And you know, you also have to think of the magnitude of racing at that event in front of that many people, the TV cameras, all, all the things that you're not used to, uh, you know, top interviews and none of that seemed to rattle him. And, uh, you know, you you, you look at uh, probably the rest of the class, and there's a lot of good bikes. There were a lot of great stories. You know, I think Chase Van Zandt did fantastic in his debut. He did. He uh, did. Obviously, the, the Smith bikes are, are both going to be great this year. Uh, but, but I also think there's a sense that uh, that, that Vance and Heinz bike is going to be a handful at every race.
0: Tony, we got to watch Terry Vance. He was up there doing color commentary with Alan during the Pro Stock motorcycle rounds, and uh, we were able to peek over and look at his 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 physical reactions every time Gage went down the racetrack.
2: Well, if body English says anything, when you watch <laughs> a guy and is he's, I mean, he's not just sitting in a chair. He is sitting back in the chair and his arms are crossed, and that just tells you what he was seeing on the racetrack. And you know, while well, Gage's reaction times weren't well, with what you call not good, not that good, I think I think a rider like that is going to press when he needs to. Yeah. He didn't need to. He had so much pressure, and his reaction times were still better than most in the class. I'm I, If you average them out, I'm pretty sure yeah. they were a little bit quicker than what the average was, but when you have a good bike, you have a good machine, it, it's, it's a tough thing that a driver or rider has to go through. It's like, okay, I don't really want to press. I don't have that big of a threat, even though, you know, once you get past the first round, everybody's a threat. But this kid had a lot of pressure on him that you know only a few drivers and riders have had to have had to go into that big of a race, that big of a stage, and have. And he came out just just like we thought he could. And um, you know, Benson Hines is a super team. And, and I and I know that they couldn't have just put any rider. Maybe there's a very small group, and I'm talking maybe two or three writers that that maybe could have done the same thing but that's out of 50 people that you could have put on that bike <laughs> they would have been able to execute and i think that's how slim the the talent pool is when it comes to a high level and and uh and, and a person that can have the mental fortitude and the background and just everything going for him. and it's not just the writer but it's the okay. people around them it's the coaching from andrew and from eddie and uh you know Terry was there, but, but they held it together. So just the fact that this is a super team, and this is the reason that I said that this will be the ultimate test for Matt Smith, because he's got a little bit of ground to make up. I'm pretty sure he's going to get there, but based on one race, um, you know, I, I wish and may the force be with you.
0: And <laughs> hey, Kevin, you mentioned it. I'll just put a point on it: the fact that Chase Van Zandt had his professional debut, uh, rode very, very well, went deep into the rounds, and certainly um, was, uh, you know, listen. Let's just call it, what it is. he was overshadowed by what, by what Gage Herrera did, and in a way that may be comforting for a guy who is a legitimate, you know, rookie. Um, unlike Van Zant, rather unlike Herrera, who had some races last year, that you mentioned this was this was uh, Van Zant's first uh, time out, so he may have welcomed. From that shade a little bit I'm sure he'll try to cast that off as we get through the season But um, definitely Was definitely cool You know, Tony, I want to stick with you for a second there's, yeah, before, before you get to that
1: yeah. There's one more thing we need to cover And it, it also Somewhat overlooked the performance Of Mike Salinas' daughter Oh man, Gina yes Carito, Who went 678 in qualified Her career best by well over a tenth And also went to the semis She beat Matt Smith on a hole shot um that is the sort of progress we had hoped to see from her um, the, the last year or two, uh, you know, as she recovered from, you know, injuries from the preseason crash a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I know Matt and Angie have worked extensively with her on her riding and uh, boy, the, the results were were obvious. Uh Last week in Gainesville.
0: Well, not just the ETs, Tony. When we watched her ride the motorcycle, she looked as you know composed as put together as a Matt Smith, as an Angie. We didn't see the bike doing a lot of leaning left or right. We didn't see her moving around a lot in the seat. So, yeah, the the performance was indicative of what appears to be a rider that is now fully kind of unified with the motorcycle.
2: Yeah, and I—I I mean, she just looks like a different rider, and Does, yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure that she had to have done her homework over the off season and over the years. You know, sometimes you just have to take your lumps, and uh, you know, she came out, and you know, the other part is, and, you know, this—this this applies to to her, to to Chase, um, to really every—it's—it's it's, and to Gage, it is the machine, and it's the rider, it's the driver, and and I know in the history of history there are some team owners and and you know some may have the opinion or be of the opinion that it's the car it's the performance but those that have competed at a high level and won races and won championships will tell you that yeah you need a good car but you know you got to go there and you got to chop wood you have to do a lot of things you have to do it consistently you have to win some big races and It's the uh, man, and in this case, the woman and the machine. And not one succeeds without the other.
0: You know, we talk about great champions and places that they just despise or cannot do anything at. It was Atlanta for Tony Schumacher, and it is certainly shaping up to be Gainesville for Erica Enders. Was there a more just... WTF moment that Erica's car not starting for the first round of Pro Stock. I mean, we talk about the frustration she's had here, losing on a whole shot while making the quickest run in history in 2022, and now it's like it's lower than whale spit at this point. You cannot get any further down the, the the frustration chart of a car that literally won't fire up, Tony. It was, I mean, it happened literally right in front of us, in front of our booth.
2: Well, for Erica, it may have been a better way to go out a year ago um but it's it's got to be it's got to be frustrating i mean she was the number two qualifier uh you know troy troy went on to win the race uh but you know he really didn't dominate he yeah. won some close races he he won he, he got to the final by you know beating uh, dallas glenn yeah. on a whole shot so you know i think you know, it's hard to say I'm, i've got a feeling that erica would have been in the late rounds i think that's pretty safe to say but you know, we've seen that happen to a couple of cars. I know it's happened to Kyle Koreski where yeah. they just don't start. And when it happens in the first round, uh, especially when you're, you know, qualified that well, it's, it's just, you know, you, as a driver, you're helpless. And, and for the crew and for the team, they're just, you know, they're just scattering, just trying to figure out a, a troubleshoot to figure out what could be wrong. But, you know, the clock is always ticking on that starting line and, uh, you know, to the next one for them.
0: Yeah, Kevin, it was just like, it was just a, I mean, I was rubbing my temples for her. That was rough.
1: Well, you you weren't the only one. I I ran into Mark Ingersoll, the the elite crew chief, Sunday night, and he was literally scratching his head. He said they wheeled the car back to the pits, put the plugs out, rolled it over, put the plugs back in, and it fired right up. Oh, my God. And he said it fired up, it it ran, it, it idled fine. So he said he had absolutely no idea what caused it. Um, which is always a scary thing because now you never know, uh, you know, will it pop up again? But I assume that between Gainesville and Phoenix, they will change every ignition piece on that car and uh, test it, you know, at the very least sit in the shop um, just to try to make sure that doesn't happen again. But uh, boy, that, that that's just, you know, of all the times for that to happen, yeah. you know it could have happened in any one of the qualifying runs, yeah. and and it could have you know, had virtually no effect. And you know, I tend to agree with, you know, with Tony, with her, you know, with her driving and that car being as good as it was, she pretty much could have punched her ticket for the semis at the very least, probably the final.
0: You know, we moved to top fuel and drivers that are frustrated. I mean, two guys that uh, want a time machine to go back to the first round. Josh Hart and Clay Millican, Tony. This was just, um, what do you say? They just failed. I mean, they they both, uh, unfortunately for them in the first round, failed themselves. The reaction time, 105 and I think 113 or 131, respectively. Um, again, it's your first at-bat of the season, right? So it doesn't define what you're doing the whole year. But, damn, that is not the first foot you want to put forward.
2: Well, we talked about Clay uh, a, a few shows ago, or maybe the previous time that uh, Kevin and I were were on. And you know, the performance of that car is there. I mean, they qualified well, but um, you know, Clay is going to be competing with a pack of wolves, and you know, it's just it's disappointing. You know, what do I think? Not much. Yeah. Um, but you know, let's let's see if he can redeem himself. And I'm sure at some point, you know, now you have you have a different team owner. The expectations are higher, and the expectations become higher for the driver so you know if the team continues to give you a good car the driver can step it up and clay has been able to do that in the past um you know and for josh hart you know you're you're, i i can see a little bit of that because you just came off of you know getting uh well winning winning the uh prep boys call out uh that was very successful the car was the car was competitive it was good but this is this just goes to show you 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 you, you put yourself at risk when you lay up a little bit. And I, I believe that's what Josh did because you play the odds. You look at the performance of Tony Schumacher and how they tested and how they ran in qualifying. And they ran okay, but, you know, you have the better car. And when you lay up just a little bit, that could be a mistake. And, I mean, the reaction from Tony Schumacher, he knew that he needed something. And with a guy like Schumacher, you have to account. You, you have to look at when he gets in the car, just take a look at him. And, and he's not going to have all those stripes on his shoulder, but you are racing a guy that has figured out for a lot of years how to win. And I, and I think that's what happened to Josh. And, you know, those were a couple of cars that, um, in terms of performance, should have advanced. And, you know, that wasn't the case. And then Tony, uh, Tony laid it on on Steve, but yeah. didn't, just didn't have the car. And I think it's just a matter of them finding the range. But they ran 372 in the first round. That was right there in that pack of good cars that advanced. So I, I think that for Tony, um, I think they're going to be a little more competitive a little earlier than than I expected.
0: Kevin, what was the response in the press box when Coletta reeled off the three sixty four in the first round?
1: It, it probably the same response that you had in the stands, <laughs> the booth, and everywhere else. A, a lot of jaws dropped. Um, I think we've been waiting for that run two years. You know. Um, to, to see that team back to where, I thought. I mean, if you remember when they first announced that Alan Johnson was going over there to be the crew chief, you thought, "Whoa!" Oh yeah. You, know, you take you take a team with the resources of the Calidas. You take Alan Johnson and his history, and you, you're going to have instant juggernaut. And obviously, that didn't happen. And given the competitive nature of the field today, it probably won't happen. Uh, I, I It's hard for me to imagine anybody dominating, given what's out there now, but um I mean clearly they've turned the corner, and um I realize it's just one race, but I can't imagine that that team would go another year winless. Uh, I don't think they'll go another six races winless It just doesn't seem possible.
0: And and listen, even when they got knocked out, Tony, the car still made a strong run. He ran – I think he ran 70 or 71 in the run that he lost on, but – I remember your reaction to that three sixty four, and and it, it, it and I want you to go in a little bit of depth on this because you've there's something you taught me a couple of seasons ago, and that when somebody does that, it's not a mistake. It is actually like a you know you've used the reference a bunch of times, like you know the boxer uses his jab to kind of establish his range, and it's like they got one in, and that's a big moment. It's not a singular run. It, it means more than that.
2: Yeah, we've seen that over the last couple of years with a few teams, uh, you know, with Leah most most recently. Yeah with mike salinas uh even with josh hart when they dip into a range it tells us all one thing and it tells them that they have found the performance there's there's a little bit of black magic when it comes to being able to run uh two to three hundreds quicker than everyone else it's like well how do you do that well there's a few things that they're doing that no one else is doing and no one else may even know what adjustments to make and I think that for, for Doug, that's the run, the one run that everybody's been waiting for. I've been waiting to see it. And what that means is that now they can run in a range with Brittany and with Mike and, you know, with the few cars and Steve Torrance, one of them. Steve Torrance really didn't do it. I don't think he showed his, his, uh, his true form, even though he got to the final round, Uh, but for Doug, Guys, this is an indication that when you race him, you've got to bring everything. You got to bring the party, and that means you got to be good on the starting line, and you got to be pretty quick. And even if you're all those things, I think what he showed in the first round that you can still get beat by this guy. And I think for Alan Johnson, uh, just like Neff, um, I think I think he has found the range. He's figured out how to how to get through, and he just needs to do it consistently. And if anybody can do it, if anyone knows how to race a car it's allen now he does he does break the tires loose a lot but that's just that's the aggressive nature that's how he's always raced but that's how he's always won championships.
0: Well, look, and it seems like timing-wise, um, it couldn't have happened at a better time. Obviously, making that run anywhere is great. But when we look at Phoenix historically, even if we just go back one year and we look at what it's going to be this coming weekend, according to the, the all the forecasts we're looking at, this will be one of those raw performance races. Last year, at Phoenix was the quickest overall race for the Nitro cars we had the entire season. It was even quicker on average than Sonoma was. And so that maybe adds even a little bit more weight to that 364, Tony? It
2: does because um, because of the, the conditions, the climate, and the forecast. And, you know, one thing about Phoenix is there's elevation. It gets really dry. Yeah. But I think for the most part, you know, most of these guys, most of the tuners know exactly what to do with the car. Now, they're going to be working with three runs, um, but they were working with three runs in Gainesville. And what happened in Gainesville that we're not going to see in Phoenix is, I think the conditions and I think the quality of racing could have been a lot better had that rain not come in. Yeah. I think the rain got underneath the rubber. They had to peel scrape. They had to resurface the track. I don't think it was as good as it was going to be. And I think from the first round to the second round, I, I really don't think that it came in like a lot of the tuners expected. We saw a lot of tire smoke. Yeah. Um, and when you go to Phoenix, because of the elevation and because of the high level of grip, we're either gonna see a quick a quick run or we're gonna see some tire shake, but I think once the teams adjust, we're gonna see some awful quick runs. I think we're gonna see some quick fields and not gonna be surprised to see, you know, some three sixty threes, three sixty fours, easily three sixty four pop up on the board.
0: You know, Kevin, let's move over to the funny car category here. And, and you know, we talk about Hagen going back to back and it's, um, you know, it makes sense. Obviously, it's a it's a it's a style of racetrack that really does fit Dickie Venables. It is a place that uh, Matt has been you know very comfortable and successful in. And and obviously for them to win two years in a row is a great thing. On the flip side of that, it was pretty surprising to me. To see height go out as early as he did honestly i was I was kind of in my mind. I had penciled in the the typical hagen height type of final round, so you know we look at what how the season started last year and and it was uh, the matt and and Robert show, but you know Robert really needs to kind of reassert himself here in phoenix
1: oh, was it
0: that big a surprise i
1: mean he he ran j r. Todd, who was rock star in testing, ran well in qualifying uh you know as we pointed out. Uh, you know, l- last year we, we, at times we called it a two horse race, a three horse race, maybe four, uh, you know, when tasca was running good, but this year, funny car is more than just Hagan height. Yeah. I mean it, it is. You have six to eight cars now, I think that are competitive enough. Um, to win. even, even you look at, you know, Chad green making the semis. Yes. That was, that was not an accident. Um, I think Wilkerson's program is improved. Alexis ran well. Um, You just go on down the list, and it's not quite the level that Top Fuel is, but it's pretty darn close. When you look at, um, you know, when you evaluate the talent of the top ten in Funny Car, Um, it's pretty good. So I think, you know, not that Height and his team were, you know, expecting it to be easy. Not not that they took anyone lightly, um, but. you know, getting to the semis anymore. I don't think you can just assume that anytime you show up.
0: And look, I think Kevin. Uh, you know, Alex Laughlin did a great job. I I think Alex Laughlin overperformed what my expectations were for him. The car goes three ninety nine. He loses in a first round, but he loses while going three ninety nine. And as we know. Uh, for the majority of the last three or four years, those um, those three second runs out of that car have been have been like visits from angels. They they happen very infrequently, and to see him put that thing in the threes in the first weekend he was in it was a, a pretty good endorsement, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I, I think
0: he, um, you know, he said testing went well, upgrading his license went well. Yeah, but it didn't. But, uh, but here is the thing: I know he said that, but it didn't. They blew it up. They shook the tires. They did every <laughs> damn thing they could have possibly done, and maybe that's why I, I think he did an even better job than I would have expected. Because of the fact that, and listen, Alex is a team guy, and I love the guy to death, but testing did not go well. I mean, he got a license, but frankly, he got a license in in in, in, in by mm-hmm. by sneaking it under the bar. Let's call it right.
1: Well, okay, a- agreed there, but um, you know, I-, I don't think he's under any illusions of the task that, that he undertook. Sure. I think he realizes of all the different cars he's driven, this one is going to be the most challenging. Yeah, uh, and, and I think he approached it in that manner of, look, I, I really need to pay attention. I really need to focus. And, you know, to, to that end, I think he's done what he needed to do. Um, I'm sure if we revisit this at mid-season, he will be far more comfortable in the car than he is now. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, and, and as far as that car, no, it has been a three-second car here for the last couple of years. But, um, you know, again, I, I think you, you – I mean, let's call it what it is. I think Alex, even with his experience, uh, is an upgrade as far as driver. And I think as the year plays out, uh, you, you're going to see more of that. I think that car will be a threat um, to, to win more rounds. It wouldn't surprise me at all to see it a couple times go deep into eliminations. Uh, I think they've got a lot of the same parts that the other teams have. So there's really no reason that uh, they should be behind the curve.
0: You know, Tony, as as Doug Coletta's 364 seems to be a, a good indicator of what's to come, J.R. Todd making the final at a race that was not predicated on a hot racetrack, that was not predicated on a bumpy or strange racetrack, and doing it at a, you know, let's call it a performance race, um, is not something we've seen out of that team in a while. And is, is that... Is his final round appearance as big a deal as I may think it is, or is there something else going on there?
2: No, if they can keep it up, I mean, they're going to be there. And I've always been more surprised when J.R. Todd has gotten beat in the first round. You know, it's like, wow, that car really didn't didn't perform, you know, not up to expectations, but up to what they are capable uh, of doing. I mean, when you think about the depth and the talent and, well, and the depth, and, and just the resources that they, that, they, that team has. That, I mean, that's really what you expect. And I think the biggest story in Funny Car is going to be, you know, we've always talked about the big three. We know it's going to be Caps and Height and Hagen. They are going to be there. But let's round out the top five. And here there are four world-class drivers and teams that are going to be competing for two more spots. Is it going to be JR? Is it going to be Cruz? Is it going to be TASCA? Is it going to be Force? because I think all of them showed uh, with the exception of Cruz, they didn't have that good of a race, but that'll change because when you look at the sheet and you look at the potential and how quick some of the cars ran to 330 feet and to the eighth mile, they just missed it. And they ran out of time and they ran out of runs. So I think that's going to be interesting of those four cars. I think TASCA is going to be better than what we thought when his crew chief walked and, um, and and took every everyone with him i think that force is still john force and he has a car to back it up and you know and and i think jr i think he showed that you know that they're going to be there i mean he didn't back into the final in fact he was leading the race to 300 feet but they always run quicker just before they smoke the tires too so uh you know i think jr todd i think he has the talent he has the, the ability i think he has the team to uh to go far
0: in your estimation, Tony, how many of the, let's call them, earlier-round losses from high-profile Nitro teams, uh, which there were plenty, as there are a lot of weekends, were at least partially affected by the squeeze that these teams were under to get the cars turned around quickly? And I ask that because virtually all these high-level teams have new people on them. Robert's t- a car has new people on them. Tasker's car has new people on it. You go right down the line and... I have to imagine from where I'm sitting, the very first race out of the gate, you get put in hyper turnaround mode and you don't necessarily have the season crew you had last year. That has to have had some impact on how this thing played out, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it puts more pressure on them. You know, when you look at what happened to Robert uh, on the burnout, uh, you can go back to proc, uh, you know, what happened to Tech on the burnout. But, but I don't know. I mean, you, you could argue that, is it time? Are they being pressed? Or did somebody just make a mistake? But did somebody make a mistake because they were feeling the pressure? Well, they're always going to have that pressure. Yeah. We're always going to need a quick turnaround. We're always going to have – TV, in my opinion, is always going to and should take precedence. And it shouldn't compromise safety, and I don't think anyone would ever allow no. that. no because it would start with NHRA, they're only going to push so hard. And then it falls on the crew chief's shoulders. He's not going to send that car down the racetrack unless it's safe. So there are a lot of safeguards. Uh, but when, when you look at, you know, some of the cars like Caps, I mean, Caps just smoked the tires. That's a, that's a decision that was made. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't entirely blame that on the quick turnaround because this is something they're accustomed to test to. But you look at the, the change, is it the change? John Medlin isn't there. You know, so there are a lot of uh, contributing factors that could have played into it, but for the most part, when I look at it, when I look at the outcome in top fuel and funny car pro stock, the teams that made a mistake, even to, even Steve Johnson that red light a 009, yeah, to me that that falls in the category of an adjustment because it's such a lightweight machine. Um, I, I'm I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. So for the most part, I think that. The teams like Caps, like Robert, that just missed it, uh, even Force, and you talk about Cruz. I think, I think they're going to hit their stride. They're probably going to get back in in a rhythm, and I think we're going to start seeing some of those teams that we expect to see in the semifinals in the semifinals.
0: Kevin in any of, in any of your reporting or conversations did that uh, that squeeze that that kind of very fast hyper turnaround situation we were in come up at all there was one top fuel dragster that literally was being assembled as it rolled around the corner there was a guy on top of the friggin engine when this thing came around the corner at the end of the staging lane so there was there was a lot of stress down there yeah and, and I believe that was Mike Salinas wasn't it uh, I think it was Doug Colette it might have been both of them at one point honestly I don't think there was only one there was kind of a multitude of them
1: yeah, it, it's uh it, it's tricky i mean obviously when you have a chance to be on the fox network you do everything you can to accommodate uh, but but yeah i i think a lot of times what's overlooked is the hardship that that causes the teams and you know especially if you have any sort of a problem uh if you have to you know if you're a pro stock team or a bike team that has to engine yeah uh, you, you are up against it um it amazes me, you know, back when we were 90 minutes, it amazed me what to do. Uh, Now that you're 45, 55 minutes, uh, it's even more amazing but, you know, it just shows you kind of the ingenuity that's out there where you know, you you kind of develop your program over time and you train your people that this is your role, this is what you got to do, you practice and you find a way to get it done and, uh, you know, we we see that more and more, Uh, you know, I think there was a time when the the Nitro teams basically said, that that's impossible. We can't possibly turn these cars around in less than an hour. Uh, now they do it routinely, and we're still seeing some of the best side-by-side racing we've ever seen. So I, I think that just speaks to what the teams are capable of.
0: I got one last question for both you guys and, and Tony, I'll throw it to you first. And I've been thinking about this since I left Gainesville and it actually popped back up into my head uh, really just this morning before we started recording the show because of a text I got from an unnamed racer, which was a text that had a screen capture uh, from Josh Peterson of, uh, of NHRA who's the vice president of competition. I believe is his official title. And it basically said, Hey, we are expecting very significant turnouts all three days at this race Make sure you plan accordingly to get into the racetrack on time to you know do what you got to do. And so this, this text was greeted with kind of a, a groan. And my question is, are we ready as a sport? I think I am and I think you two are, but I don't know if we are. Are we ready as a sport to be big time? Because this is the type of stuff that... It's what comes with the territory. You're going to sell out a track like Gainesville, get there at 530 in the morning. You're going to sell out a track like Phoenix, you best not be much later than 6, 630 in the morning, whatever. But these are not things we should be rolling our eyes about, whether we're racers or anybody else. These are the things we should be embracing if we truly want to be big time. And along with this whole Salinas weight conversation, it also comes with all that stuff. So, Tony, are we ready as a sport collectively to be, quote unquote, big time?
2: Brian, there's one reason that I get a little critical and, and I get a little, I get a little hyped up about, uh, about drivers and being prepared and being good. And, you know, not just being good on the track, but being good representatives for a company, for a brand, for the sport, do your homework. There's one reason and one reason only. And, and I'm just going to go back when, when I said, um, you know, the power went out, we had a problem with TV and I, I couldn't believe I was, I was seeing some of the crew members were like throwing their arms up, like what's going on. And, and I'm, I'm looking at those guys saying, well, they just don't understand. They don't understand that if it wasn't for TV and Fox and everything that this sport and the, and the, the executive committee and, and, uh, and Glenn, all these decisions, this too fast, too tasty, all of these things that they have delivered to the sport, to the racers. And at some point you have to think, what, at what stage is all this work going to move the needle? Because that's really what it's about. Yeah. It's about the TV rating over a million. It's pretty impressive. Close to a million, pretty impressive. When it's way down, yeah, you've got some selling to do. Yeah. And it's going to be so much easier. Sponsorships will come when all of these things happen. And if that's the if that's the delta that we are at, then, um, then we should be ready. And guess what? Ready or not, it is here. But a lot of people... <laughs> I have been doing a lot of work, but most of all, and this is this is what this is important for me to say. I haven't competed in a car in a long time, but I still, as critical as I may be, I just want to be fair to the to the fan, to the viewer, to the audience, because I think they want to hear it. If it's drama, then bring it on. But it is the, the men and women; they are the drivers that get in the car, that that go down that quarter mile or go down that thousand feet, because you know when it's all said and done, this isn't this isn't the safest occupation. It's not the safest thing to do. And, and it's all good when they make it down in one piece, but you know, stuff happens and there's, it's just a risky business. Um, but you know, they are, they are the show and the cars are the show. It's the fast cars. It's the, it's the acceleration. It's the speed. But then, but then, it's when they get out of the car and when they open their mouth, or the, the way they walk, the way they talk, what they say—that is really what people gravitate to, and that is what keeps them tuned in. So, if it's another traffic jam, I, I spent all these years—I don't know—over thirty years going to Gainesville. I finally figured out when you pull out of the track and turn right. I finally figured out what's there, and and it's a shortcut if it, you <laughs> early enough and I don't know if, if Phoenix has a shortcut that I haven't tried but uh, I'm just going to get there early so uh, ready or not if that is what is on the way for this sport um, then then good it's nice to see a little bit of a payoff uh, to all the people that have worked so hard to, to get that needle to move
0: Kevin,
1: you know if, if I'm a national event track operator and my biggest challenge now is upgrading my infrastructure to get more people in if I need to add more grandstands if I need to petition city to help me out with it with a a better road uh then i feel like i'm in a pretty good spot right now and yeah you do it's only been one race but you do kind of get the feeling but we're reaching that point where we are going to sell some tickets this year there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on here and uh, i mean i've been around a long time and we've waited for this moment for a long time um i mean i've been hearing it but oh, you know, we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to become a mainstream sport. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be on par with NASCAR. You know, we're we're probably not quite to that level yet, but clearly the progress is there. And, uh, yeah, I would hope as Tony said, with with all this, you know, now that we're on the doorstep, um, I hope everyone who's involved is ready for it. And, um, you know, both the, the good, the bad, and potentially the ugly that goes with it. Um, You know, I mean, I've always thought it's great that you have, you know, a Tony Stewart involved. I think it's great that Rick Ware uh, is involved. But I've always wondered what would happen if Chip Ganassi and Roger Penske came over and threw huge dollars around. Would that upset the balance? You know, I mean, these are things you wonder. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but does that spell the end of the small single little car, you know, single car teams? Um, You know, again, I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it but clearly there are signs that uh, we're moving in that direction.
0: Yeah, and, and look, I, uh, one of my favorite you know movie lines of all time, Denzel Washington in the in the Equalizer, he looks at the guy and says, hey if you' pray for, if you pray for rain, you're gonna have to deal with the mud too. And you know if if our mud is uh, needing to get to the racetrack early because it's going to be another blowout, which this weekend in Phoenix <laughs> granted a smaller <laughs> venue than Gainesville, is going to be absolutely blown out for three days straight. I, I, there is not a single ticket. You cannot buy a reserve seat anymore. They are gone. They don't exist anymore. They are sold and they have been for about a week. So anything that's left is general admission. And this is going to be a true kind of standing room only style crowd. And yes, I know it's it's being billed as the last time we go there. I certainly hope that it isn't. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it is. But we certainly have to treat it as it is because if we are unable to ever return to that place, we want to give it a proper send off. But. I just think that uh, our, our sport in general, I think at, at times, and I'm not saying NHRA specifically, I'm just saying the whole sport of drag racing, at times we have these like stupid interior quabbles amongst each other that is just dumb and self-defeating, where it's like if some section of the sport succeeds, then that somehow harms the other section of the sport, which is idiotic, which it's, it doesn't work that way. The rising tide floats all the ships. And so... I just hope we're entering a, a time frame where we can look at sell-out events not as these unicorns that we spotted walking through the woods, but as what we should walk into these places and expect to sell them out. Uh, am I am I crazy for thinking that, or am I just am I am I? I mean, I haven't been drinking this morning. It's only eleven a.m., so I haven't got into the into the sauce yet. But that's just the way I feel about it.
1: No, I I, I think you're right. I think we should do that, and I hope the real upside is. That you know, one of the biggest challenges we faced here in the last few years is losing racetracks like Phoenix, yeah. like Houston. So if you see sellout crowds and you see the potential this sport has, I would really hope that triggers someone somewhere to say, you know what, we're going to build a drag strip here. You yeah. know, we're going to build one. We're going to build one in Austin. We're going to build one, you know, really a- anywhere where you feel that maybe Nashville, somewhere where you feel could support an NHRA national event and we can grow the schedule that way. Because honestly, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges yeah. we face now. You know, I hope we don't lose any more tracks anywhere. Um, and if we can reverse that trend, then so much the better for all of us.
0: Closing thought, Tony. Uh, be on the lookout
2: of one thing in Phoenix and I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out there. I don't make many predictions, but uh, the first 300-mile-an-hour run at the eighth mile out of a top-field car.
0: It's coming. You think it's, it's actually coming? Uh, Coletta, Doug ran <clears throat> excuse me, 298 in Gainesville, and uh, I think there was a couple of cars that
2: – I think there's two or three cars, maybe four, that, that we'll see that speed from, and I think it's going to come on Saturday. I don't know if it'll come on uh, Friday, but, you know, you look at the field, there's 16 cars – I don't think uh, I don't think it'll be a big surprise to see it on Friday if someone toes up there with every intention of running, uh, you know, sixty three, sixty four. I think the speed can come with it because it's always pretty quick. The starting line is exceptional there, and because of the combination of the dry air and how the tuners tune the car and set them up, I think we're going to see it this this coming weekend.
0: So, and I guess the last uh, the last thing I'd say with that is if we see three hundred at the eighth are we almost guaranteed to see 340 at 1,000 feet, or do you not think that's one and the same?
2: We could, but, you know, it depends. It, if, if it runs 300 at the 8th, it may have a short fuse. It, <laughs> it might only run three, 334, 335, but uh, I, they're, they've been knocking on the door, and it just seems that the conditions are going to be there. We know the track surface will hold it, and it just seems like that storm has been brewing.
0: There we have it, boys. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Looking forward to seeing you guys in Phoenix. And uh, see, Tony, if if your prediction shakes out, I like it. Like you said, you're not a big predictor, so I like the fact you're throwing it out there on this one. Thanks, guys. Yeah,
2: right. take
0: care. Take care. And we'll be right back with some closing thoughts on this episode of the NHRA Insider. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to the NHRA Insider as we close out this show. I think that was a really good conversation with Kevin and Tony, taking the inside some of the controversy that came out of Gainesville, some of the performers, some of the non-performers, and really what we should have our eyes peeled for in Phoenix. I was really surprised to hear Tony talk about the, 300 and the eighth because he is not that guy. I am always that guy privately with him, about this is going to happen, that's going to happen. He always waves me off. So the fact that he kind of led, uh, led with that, to close our conversation with he and Kevin McKenna, I thought was uh I thought that was pretty amazing and certainly the man knows of what he speaks it is going to be an incredible weekend at the Arizona Nationals and as mentioned it is being billed as and maybe will be the last time we go to Wild Horse Pass Motorsports Park. Now there is a glimmer of hope and maybe we'll explore that in the weeks to come. But let's just say this. We are going to have a party this weekend in Phoenix, Arizona. It is going to be fast, it is going to be beautiful. And if you've not bought tickets yet, good luck with that because there are very few of them left. As I mentioned, all the reserve seating is gone. General uh, admission seating is still available. I know the camping sold out. Uh, This place is going to be. Absolutely bonkers, and I'm going to love every blessed second of it. You can tune in to watch us. We have qualifying shows on Friday with our qualified, two-hour qualifying show, I should say, uh, that we will begin to make on Friday. I believe that's going to air Saturday. Final qualifying show Sunday, and, of course, eliminations will be on FS1 Sunday evening. Make sure you tune in to watch our elimination rounds on Sunday, if nothing else. But I know you're going to want to watch qualifying because, again, we could see some of these milestone records fall. And, of course, you'll get your first taste of the mission. Too fast, too tasty. Challenge where our professional categories. Now, at this race, Top Fuel, Funny Car, and Pro Stock. We don't see our Pro Stock motorcycles back for a couple of events. And so we will pick up their mission too fast too tasty challenge when they are back out on the tour with us. But you will see the semifinalists from Pro Stock, Top Fuel, and Funny Car race off for additional cash money over the course of Saturday qualifying. Gotta be awesome. Make sure you tune in and check it all out all weekend long. If you don't have access to our Fox fs1 broadcast you can certainly subscribe to nhra.tv for the weekend or the entire season look get all the sportsman racing and the pros as well thanks for watching thanks for listening thanks for consuming the nhra insider podcast i'm brian loans i will see you on this end of a tv camera this weekend and we'll be right back next year next week i should say to recap the arizona nationals on on the nhra insider thanks see you soon